when Jesus was on earth, uh, the two major teachers, uh, Jesus was a Jewish guy in the Jewish faith, and the two major teachers were a guy named Hillel and a guy named Shammai, all right? Kind of like the two camps of understanding, much like we have two camps of understanding in our political system today, three, uh, right? We have left and right and foreigners who live here, and uh, so I'm in the third party. Uh, so uh, I get to complain, but I don't get the vote. And so uh, there is this, uh, we, we have, you're either right or you're left, and, and it's very, very distinct. And in Jesus' day, there was a right and a left. And Hillel and Shammai were these two major rabbis who gave teachings on their understanding of the scriptures. And, and, and they would be more conservative or more liberal. We can see that, and you can read how they taught and stuff like that. But there's this great story where a, a pagan Gentile guy comes up um, to, uh, I don't want to mess this up, to Shammai, the Rabbi Shammai. He says, I want you to teach me the whole Torah. Uh, and and uh, the whole thing. The Torah for them was this kind of Old Testament, what we would call this Old Testament scripture. And sometimes it would refer to just the first five books, which we call sometimes the Pentateuch, or, or maybe the whole law and the prophets, the whole thing, all right? Um, and, and she says, I want you to teach me the Torah. But, one little caveat, I want you to teach it to me while I stand here on one leg. Alright? Uh, meaning, he, he, wants you to, he wants it taught fast. Because you can't stand on one leg forever. So I'm going to stand on one leg, you tell me what it says, before I fall over, you get through this. Okay? And, and I don't know how skilled this guy was at standing on one leg, but you're not going to stand on one leg more than a couple days. Right? <laughs> if you're, what's that Survivor show? Remember that show that used to be popular? And, uh, and, and they do this kind of silly stuff. But it wasn't like that. It would be like the guy's going to stand there. I'm going to stand on one leg for a couple minutes. You tell me what it says. Shemai responds, uh, apparently he was in a construction site by grabbing a builder's tool and trying to hit the guy and chasing him away. All right. Uh, this is the the student comes to the teacher and says, "I want you to teach me in five minutes." The teacher responds by beating him. All right, and and he chases him away. So he goes to Hillel, and this story makes Hillel look a lot better. So you know, uh, he, he goes. The pagan Gentile guy goes to Hillel, the rather rabbi, and says, "I would like you to teach me the Torah." Uh, and and Hillel, and the same kind of uh, really quickly kind of deal. And Hillel actually tells him, he says, "What is hateful to you." don't do to others. That's the whole Torah. What is hateful to you, don't do to others. Everything else is just commentary on the Torah. So now go and learn. And that's Hillel's whole lecture on what the Old Testament is. So if you've been reading through the Old Testament this year, sorry you've been wasting your time. Hillel says, what is hateful to you, don't do to others. Everything else is commentary. Now go and learn. This is uh, what we would call, in our culture, we call this the golden rule. Through some historical events, we ended up calling this the golden rule. What's hateful to you, don't do to other people. And we see this in other writings too. Uh, old Greek writings, Confucius said something just like this about 500 years before uh, Jesus says it today. Uh, and, and this is kind of, this is one of those things where if you're doing a quiz, is it in the Bible or not? You can put it up and people are like, no, that's not in the Bible, it's too simple. Uh, and, and it is kind of this thing where Jesus is referencing something. And so when Jesus enters into this culture where there's a right and a left, where there's Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai, sometimes when Jesus is teaching, he sides with one of those guys. He doesn't enter their camp. But he sometimes sides with one of those guys. It's kind of an interesting thing, but being a faithful Christian in a system where you have a choice of one or the other is sometimes complicated, isn't it? 
Sometimes you'll say, well, I'm voting for this guy. And you'll say that to the wrong person. And they'll say, well, you must love this. And you're like, whoa, I don't, I don't want that. I just, that wasn't my, I'm not a one-issue vote. Well, boom, right? It's over. There's no conversation. Uh, and, and this is kind of, when you're a Christian, or when you're a spiritual teacher, just landing in one camp doesn't always work. And so Jesus sometimes would side with Hillel. And Jesus would sometimes side with Shammai. Jesus would sometimes be patient like Hillel and, and teach people. At other times, he would be like Shammai and start throwing tables around in the temple and had a, a bit of a, a temper, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you're allowed to say that Jesus had a temper, but he threw tables in church. I mean, come on. So, um, and so there is this kind of uh, interesting culture that Jesus is actually really living in. And so we're going to read this verse. It's just one verse today. and It'll be on the screen or you can open your Bible or you can just memorize it because it's just one verse. It's chapter 7 verse 12 when Jesus is speaking and he's giving this sermon on the mount. All right. Now when Jesus enters into this as a rabbi. Oh let me read the verse for you. This is Jesus and this is the conclusion to the sermon on the mount so you know. Jesus says this. So whatever you wish others would do to you do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You can see when Hillel, the rabbi, talked about it, or when Confucius talked about it, there was a negative. What is hateful to you, don't do to others. Whereas Jesus gives it a positive spin. Logically, it's exactly the same. You can go online and read some theologians and say, Jesus is better because he's positive. Jesus wasn't trying to say that, all right? Uh, he, it's just, he probably forgot the negative and said it like this instead. Um, and his disciples said, don't you mean this? Uh, don't correct me. You know, but, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So when Jesus begins speaking and teaching, and he starts doing this thing that we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, Jesus' first long discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. When he starts speaking, <clears throat> Jesus has entered the conversation as a, what they would classify as a rabbi. In the Jewish culture, a rabbi would be someone who traveled around teaching. What Jesus did was, traveled around teaching. A rabbi would have disciples who would learn to be like the rabbi. Jesus had disciples who were learning to be like Jesus. All right. So when Jesus begins teaching, he's entering the conversation. He's saying there's this cultural thing going on where people are talking about how do we live as people of God. And now I'm going to enter this and I'm going to speak to it and I'm actually going to be a part of the conversation. So when Jesus begins giving this Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, uh, he begins with some poetry and stuff. But in chapter 5 verse 17, um, Jesus actually says this. Before... and. If you, if you go to church a lot, you understand this is the way a sermon works, right? The pastor tells a funny story, all right? If you watch Joel Osteen on TV, he reads an email joke, all right? So I'm going to tell you a funny story that's going to wake you up, right? Uh, as if that's true. I don't need a funny story because our band wakes you up. But, um, so we tell a funny story. Then I tell you what I'm going to say. Then I do three points to support what I'm going to say. And then at the end, I tell you what I did say. By the end, you're sleeping because I've told you the same thing four times. Uh, and, and then we read a poem or a stanza from a hymn, right? And if you're using the words like stanza and hymn, you're not at the grove. Uh, but, uh, and then we pray and go home. Now, so Jesus, if you understand this contemporary structure of, of preaching, Jesus gives kind of an opening to the Sermon on the Mount. They're called the Beatitudes. All right? which we talked about a long time ago. Uh, but Jesus is, talks about the Beatitudes. He gives some opening or plenary remarks. And then he says this. is kind of his opening statement. In Matthew chapter 5, 17. 
He says, do not think that I, Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is putting himself, as he enters this conversation, he's siding with the Old Testament law. Whereas many people see Jesus as this rebellious figure who's starting a new religion, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment. I am what the entire Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, was pointing to. I am what you were getting ready for. I am the point of the last couple thousand years of history. I'm what you were waiting for. I'm what you were looking for. This is it. This is the moment. And so Jesus is putting himself in the conversation in a particular place. So you can't just tear this out of the context or pull this away. Like Jesus isn't speaking this in an, in an objective vacuum. He's speaking this to people who exist in a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain culture. And he says, I haven't come to get rid of that Old Testament law. I've come to fulfill that Old Testament law. Which complicates the situation, doesn't it? If he just got rid of it, then we would know we could just cut that off our Bibles. And reading through the Bible in a year would be a lot simpler. Right? I've been through Lamentations a couple weeks ago. Depressing. Right? It was raining too. It's like, come on. But, um, but you're, when, you, when, you talk, when Jesus talks about he's fulfilled it, that means the Old Testament is this kind of opening, is this kind of travel, or this kind of journey that's moving towards something. And Jesus is the destination that the Old Testament was moving towards. The whole Law and Prophets points to Jesus. So that when you read Old Testament Scriptures, you can read Jesus in Old Testament Scriptures. Repeatedly. People often talk about how they only read the New Testament because it's about Jesus. But if you, you need to understand Jesus in order to understand the Old Testament. Uh, now, I'm going to rant on that, but uh, maybe I'll write a blog on it because and, and, that'll, be, that'll be wordy. If there is... Uh, so when Jesus preaches, he says, here's the deal. I'm fulfilling that Old Testament. Then he gives a bunch of points. He's gonna talk, then he talks about anger. He talks about lust. talks about divorce. talks about your word or promises. talks about retaliation. Loving your enemies. Giving to the needy. How to pray. How to fast. What to do with your money. What to do with your worry. All right. What to do uh, with your relationship with other people as far as judging other people. What to do in terms of evangelism or sharing the faith. So Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that Old Testament and now here's what it looks like. And that's what this whole Sermon on the Mount is as we've been going through this for a couple of months. If you're here for the first time, it's online. You can catch it. Um, Jesus is opening this up and saying, here's what the fulfillment is. Here's what the Old Testament was talking about. Because the Old Testament presented itself as law and as prophecy. And whenever we have just law and we don't have relationship with that law, we immediately are fighting against the law. We immediately are figuring out how can we get around that law, right? If you're playing a game or a sport and you actually genuinely don't like the other team, you're trying to get around that law to figure out how you can win because you don't actually, you, there's no relationship. And so the rules don't matter as much because there's no relationship with the other team. All right? If you handed in your taxes to your friends, you would cheat less than if you handed in... Well, you shouldn't cheat at all because you'll go to prison and, and then you'll look cool. But it, it's that kind of... 
if you're driving with a policeman, you don't text him <laughs> while he's right there if you're driving, right? You just don't. You, now, if you text anyways, that's going to be... I was dropping off my kids the other day. Woman texting behind me. Well, and it wasn't anyone that goes to our church. All right? Uh, but I'm in line. Her kid's in the car. And she's texting. I'm like, please don't hit me. Please don't hit me. Uh, anyways. I took a picture of her. Backed into her. And then blamed No. Because uh, <laughs> I don't need laws to fix it. No. Um, but there is this... Uh, like... If there's a relationship, the laws are followed in a different way than if there is no relationship. And so Jesus is saying that this, if you treat the Old Testament like an abstract law, it's, you're going to have one understanding. If you see it as a relational presentation of God, finding fulfillment in Jesus, which Jesus is a relational action by God, sending his son to earth to have relationship with people, that's a relational action. That affects the way that we understand the Law and the Prophets. So that the fulfillment and the expression of the Law and the Prophets, as it opens up to all these things, if you want to understand it, Jesus sides with Rabbi Hillel. He sides with a common saying in his day. He sides with Confucius, of all people. He sides with a couple of Greek philosophers. This is, I mean, this really is common sense. He says, think about the way you want to be treated and treat other people that way. Uh, this is kind of changes from a what would Jesus do to a what would I want, right? Like how would I like people to, what would I like people to do if I was being affected by this situation? And Jesus actually says, don't, so you don't have to think about what Jesus would do because often Jesus would calm the storm or walk across the water, do things you are incapable of doing. Well, maybe you're capable of doing those, but you, most of us aren't. And Jesus says, imagine you are the one being affected by this situation. How would you like to be treated? And then make your decisions from there. And so, as he's preaching, he comes to this, and this really is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a couple more sections, but Jesus is going to... Here's his opening and his teaching, his first big, long sermon. And then he, the last two sections that we're going to talk about before Christmas talk about um, an actual commitment. He says, here it is, and then he's going to say, okay, so what are you going to do with it? But today is the ending of, here it is. Here's what we've been talking about, here's where we've gone. And so Jesus enters into this conversation, placing himself firmly in the Jewish tradition, firmly in the tradition of the rabbis and the teachers. He positions himself as a rabbi, and in this case, sides with Hillel. Now this probably wasn't a divisive play, play, like. Shammai probably wasn't going, treat, do unto others before they do to you, right? He probably wasn't saying, have you heard that saying? Did you catch that? Do unto others before they do it to you? Okay. Some of you are like, oh, that's in the Bible? No, wake up. It's not. All right. Um, when Jesus enters this conversation, he's saying, I'm down with this common saying. This makes sense to me. Now, it's not, obviously, the full summation of the entire Old Testament. You don't know anything about sacrificial regulations by doing unto others the way you want to have them do to you. It has nothing to do with an actual love for God. Do you see that? There's no, like, it's really easy to turn Christianity into what I call moralism, alright? And moralism is you do good things to others and it'll pay off. Uh, sometimes people call that karma. Like, I'm going to do good things to, good, good things to you and then you'll do good things to me, it all works out, right? Or you did bad to me, and I'm not going to pay you back. 
I'm going to let karma get you, right? And then there's a cuss word at the end. Uh, and, and it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go down. Like, if karma was true, you're all dead, right? You're, it's over. And we have a lot of police in this room, and they can tell you, it's over, all right? Uh, there is, and, and if you think, if karma is true, and you read the scriptures, and it says you're already a sinner, you're screwed, all right? So uh, I understand people like that because it starts with a K and it's very spiritual, but it, you're, it's over. So anyways, if karma was true, we'd all just be murdering each other right now. Um, but anyways, uh, that's always a fun argument. If we're entering into this conversation, if Jesus is entering into this conversation and saying, here's the way this is going... We don't take that to say, okay, now we don't need the Old Testament. Because I treat other people the way I want to be treated, so I don't need the Old Testament. This is, uh, it becomes moralism when I say, I'm a good person. Because I treat others good, and others treat me good. The, the Bible doesn't say you're a good person. Alright? And I know you probably, uh, you're a good person, sure, whatever. But the Bible actually says uh, that while you're in sin, you're an enemy of the cross. If you're wondering whose sin Jesus was taking when he died on the cross, the first place to look is at ourselves. If you figure you're a good person and you don't need Jesus, that's sin in itself. And so when we start thinking, I'm good, then we enter into this moral kind of arena where we start saying, I do unto others as God wants me to do. And, and so I don't need the other parts of this spiritual life or the other parts of this real, actual life with God that we exist in. So we do unto others as we would have them do to us. And that's good. It, it negates Jesus' teaching on prayer. It negates God's holiness. And God stops being an almighty God because we don't need Him to be an almighty God because we've got moralism. And so moralism falls apart really quickly and you can interpret this as moralism if you pull it out of its context. If, if this wasn't said by Jesus, when it's said by every other philosopher who ever said it, every other rabbi, every other Greek philosopher, that guy Confucius, when they said it, it was moralism. It was do good things for good things' sake. And when God says it, it's do good things because of the relational movement of God towards you. When Christians do good things, it's not initiating. Do you understand that? You're not beginning something with God. God's be he began something with you. When we worship, we're not initiating worship. We're responding to a love that's been poured out to us. And frankly, we're joining in with worship that's been going on for a long time. Uh, it's kind of a fun thing, but when you sing and you think God's listening in heaven, the reason we have it turned up so loud is because it's so loud there already. <laughs> right? If the angels are around God worshiping 24-7, when we begin to sing, we're joining in a chorus that's already happening. When we begin to love others in the selfless way that God loved us first, we join in on a story that God has been telling since the beginning of creation. Since mankind sinned, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the story of the Bible is God chasing humanity. 
Even in that garden, as God walks around and says, Adam, where are you at? If the story is God chasing and people responding. And so when you begin to treat others the way that you would want to be treated, you're joining in the pursuit of God after other people. Moralism is the pursuit of self. If you love others the way you want to be loved, if you treat others a certain way because you want to be treated in a certain way, that's moralism. That's karma. That's a self-serving philosophy. Whereas Jesus actually says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Has nothing about the results in your own life. Nothing. Jesus calls us to a radical, radical, radical self-sacrifice which will not be personally beneficial. Following Jesus in this teaching will actually not be personally beneficial to you. Other people will still treat you badly. Other people still have the right to treat you badly. Jesus says in other scriptures, in other teachings, that he says, if they hung me on a cross, what do you think they're going to do to you, my followers? Like, really? What is your expectation? They hated Jesus, but they sure will like me. Because I'm much more lovable than Jesus? It falls apart. So Jesus enters this, and he says, what do you want? This is what we talked about last week, right? What are the things that you want? And then in order to follow Jesus, you give others those things. Okay, do you remember last week? If you were here last week, if you weren't, you can just imagine this. But I asked you to write down what do you want. And then to follow Jesus actually means to give what you want to other people. And people wrote things down, like I, I want to see my kids follow Jesus. Okay, then you give to other people's kids. You help other people's kids follow Jesus. Uh, I want a boat. Give a boat to someone else. <laughs> and you're like, no, I don't want to. You're shallow. There you go. Right? You wrote down boat, you know? <laughs> or, or what are the things I want to fall in love? Well, serve others. Or maybe love others instead of trying to find someone to love you. That's always kind of an interesting conversation. Or I want to, uh, you know, I want someone to meet all my needs. Well, then meet someone else's needs. And it's not a karma thing. I'm not saying if you meet someone else's needs, your needs are going to be met. It, it, probably not. There's a great promise for you today. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but I can tell you that you'll be following in the way of Jesus. You'll be joining in the story of God. And the meaning that your life will have will be radically increased in comparison to someone who lives a moralistic life trying to serve themselves. So when we treat other people in the way that we want to be treated for self-serving gains, moralism. When we do it selflessly, that's the gospel. That's Jesus entering humanity. I want you to just think about this for one second. What benefit does God get out of sending Jesus to the earth? Like what benefit does Jesus get in his birth and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection? 
Like you were God, hanging out in the throne room of God, and now you are living in an era when they don't have indoor plumbing. Right? Jesus walked around, Jesus got tired, Jesus died at most, the most painful death that humanity could imagine. What's the benefit for Jesus? Like Jesus didn't look at his life on earth and go, now I'm, that was a good time. If you compare it, I mean, we think it might have been, but if you compare it to living life where Jesus sits at the right hand of God, Jesus doesn't benefit from his sacrifice for you. He doesn't. And you might say, well, he receives my worship. Well, God demanded that already. There's, you don't get an option in that. And so Jesus enters into this selfless conversation, and when we follow Jesus, we enter into the selfless conversation. We say, I'm siding with those who cannot benefit me. I'm going to live my life in a way that benefits those who, have, who cannot benefit me. There are those that you serve where you're going to, it's going to be beneficial to you, right? You buy your wife some new cooking ware because you like eating good food. Don't do that either, by the way, okay? <laughs> That's a really rookie mistake, all right? But, okay? Uh, when we do things to people in order that things will be better for ourselves, like we're nice to our boss so that we get promoted, right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is when we're nice to those people who cannot repay us. If you, if you want to see gospel, uh, like even here this morning, uh, gospel happens when people are serving in a way that they won't receive any credit or any thanks or any benefit from. If, if you think about there's going to be babies in the back who are probably going to mess up their diapers and probably throw up because that's all I know that babies do, right? <laughs> and then they start walking and it goes downhill from there, right? They start talking and you go, why did I teach them to talk? But, uh, so w there's going to be people in our church who serve this morning, and you don't know who they are. And the thing is, as selfless as that is, there might be moms and dads who say thank you, or who appreciate them, or who give them a gift this Christmas, because they've been nurturing their kid all year long, right? So there is thanks there. So that doesn't even reach to the depth of what Jesus is talking about. But there are people in our world, this is why I love the shoebox program, this is why I think it's so beautiful, uh, often I would say, someday you're going to get to heaven and that little boy or that little girl is going to come and say thank you. How self-serving is that? Right? I'm going to fill in a box so somebody comes and talks to me in heaven? Come on. It really is thankless when we start to say, I'm giving this and I will never for all eternity care about the reward that I get for this. Then we're starting to enter into what we just call and throw around as the golden rule. So this Lawn Prophets, the Lawn Prophets is this Old Testament, alright? It's how Jesus would refer to it. They didn't call it the Old Testament then, because it was the only testament, alright? Uh, they would probably be insulted that you called it Old Testament. Uh, so let's call it First Covenant. Uh, the first uh, 30 whatever books of the Bible. And, and Jesus, when he says, the, here's this, if you want to sum them up, this is what it is. So why does God give these people a Lawn of Prophets? What the Law and the Prophets does for the Jewish people is it, it shapes them and forms them. It creates their culture. It makes them who they are. 
If you talk to a person in Jesus' day and ask them about the Law and the Prophets, they loved it. We often talk about it like it's a whole bunch of rules and it would be terrible. They loved it. Like it was beautiful to them. Because it was who they were. This would be like if you talk to a Tea Party person about the Constitution, right? Oh, I love the Constitution. I can't even tell you what the Constitution says, but I'll study it for my citizenship test. But when uh, they just, oh, that piece of paper, right? Like it gives them meaning. This tells me who I am. I'm a gun-carrying American, right? That's the only thing I know about Constitution. But, uh, so, but there is this, uh, I'm going to fail my citizenship test. <laughs> um, where's the gun question? Uh, blacklist okay so um, but if you talk to people it's because this this document defines them and when you would talk to the Jewish people this document this book this group of books defines me it, it shapes me it forms me and if Jesus is saying the law and the prophets is summed up in this sentence do to others as you would wish that they, that that it would be done to you what he's saying is this is what forms us this is what shapes us. This is who we are. When people talk about the church, the thing that they say about the church should be that the church is a group of people, and I'm not just talking about the Grove, I'm talking about all churches. The church in a universal sense is the group of people on earth who are shaped and formed by this drive they have to do great things for others in a way that won't reward themselves. They do great things for other people in a way that they won't receive any glory for. Now, what this does is more than just create a rule for us to follow, it creates a culture that actually shapes us. A lot of times when we talk about I want to I follow Jesus or I want to know more about God, we want to read information because we're an information-based society. All right, we're an information-based culture. If I know more things, if I read more books about God, then I'll know more about God and, and then I'll be able to be a follower of God. And what Jesus says is if you want to be shaped by God, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. So instead of reading one more book, or instead of doing a, a better uh, whatever Bible reading program or instead of having better church attendance record if you want to be shaped into a follower of Jesus it isn't an information basis it's an activity basis it's an actual lived outness that happens for real people in a real everyday life so that this so that we actually learn what it is to be Christian by being Christian I, mean, I, I have good friends who will talk about their testimony or their story of, of faith that they didn't understand Christianity and so they decided to become a Christian anyways and then all of a sudden they understood Christianity. Right? Like It's quite difficult to understand Christianity without the experience. It's difficult to understand why we follow Jesus without the experience of following Jesus. This is that we learn by being or we learn by doing we're shaped and formed by our practices, not just the information that we put into our heads. So that, and I would actually push it this far, what you say, or the information aspect of your faith, I don't believe is actually your faith. 
I think that's your desired face. The information you take in and the information you put out on an information basis is your desired faith. And your actual character of who you are is revealed by your actions. Here's what I mean. I have, I have all sorts of friends and, and uh, who go to other churches, right? Like I get to know other pastors, I get to know leaders from other churches. And we'll hear stories about people who go to Grace Church. Do we have any Grace Churches in this town? I don't even know. I'm not talking about an individual Grace Church. Just let's call it Grace Church. And when you go to Grace Church, the leaders there are terribly judgmental. Right? So they say, this is Grace Church, yet their practice is judgmentalism. So I would say they have an, like a belief that they wish was true. Like we wish we were graceful. I don't think they're terrible people. I think they're fallen people. I wish I was graceful. I want to be graceful. I am judgmental. So I wish I believed all people were created equal, but I behave in a way that says some people weren't. I will say my beliefs that I wish were true, but I will live my beliefs that actually are true. So that you can say, I love God. <laughs> or you can say, I believe in God. That's a fun one. People will say they believe in God. What I hear is, I wish I believed in God. So if they really believed in God, they would be much more scared. Because <laughs> I've seen their life. <laughs> and if they really believed in God, like I mean the God of the Bible, that would be a terrifying thing for them to believe in and live the way that they live. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so when we say as Christians, and that's an example of someone who, who I wouldn't say is following Jesus. But when we say we're following Jesus, what we say is really, really empty if it's not accompanied by a real-life action. Because that real-life action is primary, and the words that we use, I think, are secondary. So that if you have an amazing life of service, let's say you're a really selfless person, I don't know what you compare this to, but let's say you are. The community recognizes that you're a selfless person. And you say, I'm working on being more giving. I'm working on being more selfless. The community would not believe the words that you say. Do you understand that? Because they see your life and they know that you are selfless. Because your life speaks truer, that's not a word, than your words do. Because our words can become our desired outcomes. There's actually like scientific research on this. If you're dieting right now or you're about to or maybe you're, you're pigging out right now so that in January you can diet, right? Like this is the put on weight phase, the hibernation phase and then in January we'll buy the exercise equipment and sign up for the gym. But um, if you say to people, I'm working out, I'm losing weight, I'm on a diet, your brain actually gives you like a chemical prize like a little ding, and you, it actually feels good. And it's actually bad for you because you won't go and exercise and lose weight because you feel good because people said you were awesome when you said you were going to. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, I'm going to read through my whole Bible this year, everyone. Ding, everyone's like, impressive. Then I don't have to do it, right? Because I get the benefit of the good feeling. This, this is actually like real research. You can look this stuff up. And so when we start talking about things 
It's not like we're trying to deceive something. It's like talking about it, just talking about it, deceives our real actual actions. So when I go and say, hey, I really love serving people, and you're like, that's awesome. Then I don't have to serve people. Because I've got the feeling of serving people just from you saying I'm awesome. And so when our words are used, we start to deceive ourselves. And not in, a, not in a hypocritical way. Like in a real, like chemical way. Like our brain gives us this chemical little prize. It's called gaming theory. You can look this stuff up. The reason you play video games all night is because you level up over and over. Right? Like those boys that are addicted to Xbox, who are 35, they... <laughs> The reason that they're playing and playing is playing is because in gaming theory they actually set it up so you get points and you get rewards in a way that your brain chemical says, oh I got a reward, let's get another reward, right? And so you stop cutting the grass because that reward takes forever. And here I got ding, 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 a whole bunch of rewards, right? It is just like a, a puppy with a treat. I'm just a grown man just like a puppy with a treat. Okay, um, that's my theology. Let me end with this. Uh, one of my favorite authors right now, his name is Peter Rollins, okay? And uh, he writes books that are incredibly challenging. I'm fairly certain I don't believe what he's saying. Um, but, but I really, really appreciate how far he pushes me. Uh, and, and he's a Jesus-loving guy. He writes theology, right? Like, and and I really, I think he's a Christian. And, uh, and he would claim the same. He has this video, and I'll post a link to it um, maybe on my Facebook or on the Groves Facebook or something like that, um, where he talks about, he was giving this lecture uh, in Grand Rapids at a university, and the person, uh, a group of students came up to him and said, you talk about all this stuff, but you don't talk about the resurrection. Do you deny the resurrection? And Peter Rollins stopped and he goes, well, yes, I do. All the time. All my friends know that I deny the resurrection. And, and he talks about the students being kind of shocked by that. Because if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you, I mean, that is where your Christianity will start to fall apart. If Jesus is still dead, right? And he says, I deny the resurrection when I walk away from the poor and the homeless. Then I deny that Jesus came back to life for people who didn't deserve it. I deny the resurrection. This is what Peter Rollins says. When I participate in unjust systems that take advantage of people who can't take care of themselves, I deny the resurrection. He connects his theology to his action. Instead of saying, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, he looks at his life and says, when do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus? If the resurrection of Jesus means God's selfless gift to mankind, then I believe in the gospel when my life is a selfless gift to other people. You and I deny the resurrection when we start to serve ourselves, when we stop following Jesus, even though we say it, yes, I believe it, I always believe that Jesus is alive, your actions betray you. Here, my actions betray me when I participate in systems that take advantage of others. When I ignore the poor, when I ignore orphans and widows, when I put on blinders so that I can not have to look at the reality of the world, then I deny that Jesus 
died and rose again for those people. And then I deny that Jesus died and rose again for me. Because if he didn't die for them, he didn't die for me. So we do unto others what we wish would be done to us. Not because we want to follow one more rule that Jesus puts out there. Because we desperately want to be shaped by the resurrection life that Jesus offers. Let's pray together. And actually, let's stand, alright? God, we stand in your presence and we're about to worship you. And we pray, God, that we would worship you actually in our hearts and with our lives. If our words are empty, I pray that you would just stop them. I really do. God, don't allow us to be a community or to be individuals who have all the right words or who have all the right sayings or all the right bumper stickers. Make us a community of people. For real, God, make us a community of people who are shaped by our living for other people. We don't want to live for other people for our benefit or for the Grove's benefit or so that we don't want to even do it so that God looks good. God, we pray that you would shape us because we want to live for others for the benefit of others. May this church exist for the benefit of its city, for the benefit of the valley. May we as individual Christians exist for the benefit of our families who don't know you, our friends, our co-workers, our, the students next to us in class. May they receive all the benefit of our faith. Yeah, we'll receive this eternal destiny. Yeah, I get eternal life. But I desperately pray that the benefit of my Christianity would be found in the lives of the people I interact with. Which I really believe can only happen in you, can only happen through you. But make this world great because there's Christians who live for the world in the same way that Jesus died for it. Amen. Let's sing together.